Jesus is on mission, moving now toward Jerusalem very decisively in Luke's gospel. From chapter 9, verse 51, he's in this long series and section where he's traveling to Jerusalem, ultimately where he will die. And now here in chapter 10, he's been sending out the 72 disciples in a uh, section that is actually focused on discipleship, and we're told what it means to be a good or true disciple in the section of Scripture that we're going to read today. He tells us two things. We need to love God, and we need to love our neighbor. And then, to actually clarify that for us, Luke structures his gospel so that we see a story of what it means to be a loving neighbor in verses 30 through 35. And then he gives us another story of what it really means to love God in verses 38 through 42, ultimately before we're told how to commune with God in chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. As we look at what Luke is laying out for us, he's actually giving us a picture, not of a bunch of different sections of Scripture, but of a whole story to try to help us see what does it mean to be a good disciple. And then what I want you to be prepared for is to circle or underline or note just how many questions are asked in the section of Scripture that we're going to read in just a moment. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came by to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a, had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up with him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to him, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word to study it. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And we pray that you would help us Father, now as we give our attention to it, that you would write these eternal life truths on our hearts. Father, I thank you for these, my friends, and we ask for all of us who are in Christ that you would drive us into deeper repentance and deeper faith today. And Father, for any, perhaps, who are here with us today who are not yet believers, that you would do the merciful work of removing the heart of stone and inserting the heart of flesh and causing them to be born again. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. W.C. Fields, the old-time comedian who in his professional persona seemed to be in a continual state of inebriation, came to the final illness of his life. And while in the hospital, one of his longtime friends who had known of him for many years and had seen his absolute disdain for religion and his hostility against everything godly and his moral life where he walked against everything that was true, walked into the hospital room when he had come to visit him, only to think that he had come to the wrong place because there before his eyes was W.C. Fields reading a Bible in his hospital bed. Utterly amazed, he asked his friend, W.C., what in the world are you doing? To which W.C. replied, looking for loopholes. I'm looking for loopholes. From the first century to the 21st century, there have been tons of people looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes to inherit eternal life. But friends, we're not going to inherit eternal life because we found a loophole or because we've done our best or because we haven't hurt anyone. Luke tells us we'll only inherit eternal life by mercy. We will only inherit eternal life because Jesus has shown compassion to us. He tells us this when he tells us the, about a conversation Jesus had with a religious leader. A religious leader who is referred to here in verse 25 as a lawyer. A lawyer whose motives from the very beginning of this conversation are impure when he asks a disingenuous and dishonest question. Verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's looking for a loophole. 
He's looking for a loophole as he looks for one thing specifically that he can do. The one thing that he needs to do so that he can be assured that he will receive what he wants to receive. Eternal life. Not much has changed in nearly 2,000 years, has it? From the ancient world to the modern world, people have wanted a list of all of the one right things that they need to do so that they can live life the way that they want to live it the rest of the time with the people that they want to associate with the rest of the time. But ever the teacher, as he so often does, Jesus actually flips the script as he answers this man's question. Verse 26. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? Since this man seems so knowledgeable, Jesus asks him a question and answers his question with a question. What do you think that you need to do? Because you already have your mind made up with the type of question that you're asking. And surprisingly, his answer is a good one. It's not just a good one. It's actually a great one as he actually combines two sections of Scripture and brings them together. He cites Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. He cites Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Look at verse 27. And he answered Jesus, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He sums up everything that the law demands. That we love God with every fiber of our being, absolutely everything, that we might love God completely with everything that we have. And on top of that, that we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, I like to envision the disciples at this point just kind of sitting back, watching Jesus, ready for him to just eviscerate the man for his answer before Jesus surprisingly approaches the man's answer with a positive response. In verse 28, Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. As readers, we think this man is done. Surely he has not gotten what he wanted. He comes to test the Lord, to provoke the Lord, to challenge the Lord with the disingenuous question where he's trying to upend the Lord. And surely at this point, we would think that this man would have had enough. Jesus doesn't come out and blast him. Jesus doesn't contradict the law of God. Jesus doesn't say something offhand or heretical. Jesus doesn't say something against the political establishment. Surely at this point, this man would say, I've had enough. I'm going to count my losses, and I'm just going to walk away as Jesus has not taken the bait and said anything controversial to the man. But as Jesus turns to walk away with the requirement of the law just hanging in the air. Love God. Love your neighbor. You can envision the man just blurting out the exact wrong follow-up question as he kept the wholehearted, total soul, complete strength, all mind love for God to himself. Who is my neighbor? Verse 29. He should have asked, how can someone find eternal life if they have failed to love God and his neighbor perfectly. He doesn't assume that he's failed to love God. He wants to narrowly define who is his neighbor. But this man was controlled, verse 29, with the desire to justify himself. 
So he wanted limited liability, which is actually what all of us want today. A limited liability. How do I protect the devastation in my life and control what's going to happen to me so that I can be assured of the outcomes that are before me? And he inquires how tightly he could just draw the circle so that he would know who are all of the people that I have to love and I don't have to show love to anyone else. Who are the people that I need to show this extravagant love to? Friends, he was doing what so many of us have done. Lowering God's standard so that we're able to clear it, to live the way that we want to live, with the people that we want to live, in the timetable that we want to live, however we would like to live. And once again, we see Jesus ever the teacher. Jesus responds with a story as he tries to define the terms of the law narrowly and expands them more broadly so that he can not manage his eternal life and he can no longer merit any favor. A story that is well known to many of us. A story that we know and we're able to reproduce, but a story that would have been absolutely shocking to the lawyer who heard Jesus tell the story. Look at it again in verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. We're told the astonishing story of a man who's walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, a treacherous but well-known, very commercially important route a winding 17-mile journey through limestone crags descending from about 3,400 feet all the way down to about 800 feet where there were all types of little nooks and crannies for thieves and robbers to hide and jump on unexpecting people. So when Jesus begins with verse 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, everyone would have been on the edge of their seat just as if I would have begun the story saying, on one evening while it was dark outside, I was walking in an alley in West Philly. Everyone would have expected some type of altercation or at least some danger to be present, which is precisely what happens in the story. But careful readers noticed that the attack is not really the important thing to Jesus. He doesn't answer any of the questions for us about what happened in the moment. We're not told anything about who the man is. Is he a good man or is he a bad man? Is he a rich man or is he a poor man? Is he an old man or is he a young man? We're not really even told anything about the robbers other than the fact that they stripped him and beat him. Instead, we're told about these central actors, those who are just passing by on the other side after the crime has been committed. And at first, it seems as we're listening to the story that favor has fallen upon the man who is laying there half dead when a priest comes along the way. Surely, this has to be a good situation. Someone merciful is now traveling down the road. But he looks at the scene and all of the devastation that's taken place. And he determines that it's bad, but it's too much for him to get involved. 
So our hopes quickly fade, as he does what many people would do, just cross to the other side and passes by. But fortunately, a Levite comes by, another very religious person, who looks out on the scene and once again sees the devastation. A man stripped, half dead. Surely this is a tragedy, but it's too much to get involved. So he decides that he doesn't want to, and he passes by on the other side. And who can blame them? Who can blame them, right? Don't we do the same thing when we see tragedy? We look out on it and we know it's wrong. We see that it shouldn't take place or it shouldn't have taken place. It's terrible. And this person was innocent. But we decide that it's actually just too complicated for us to get involved. And so we don't. We don't say anything. We don't do anything. We just pass by. Whether it's because it will make us unclean, like the priest and the Levite, or because it'll take too much time and we don't want to give it, we leave the half-dead to themselves as we pass by on the other side. But verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, saw the same thing, and he got involved. He didn't just get involved. Actually, Jesus uses a unique word here for us. He has compassion on the person. The scene is breathtaking because everyone knows Jews hate Samaritans. The races don't mix. There's ethnic tension. The people don't like one another. They're enemies from the start. They know each other, and they know that they don't like each other. There's no reason that they would associate with one another. They have consciously tried to live in different places and go different places and pass by many times. And yet, despite all of the animosity... Despite the potential danger to himself as he too travels on this dark, dangerous, craggy road, he tends to the man's injuries and he cleans them and he binds them up and he gathers the man and he lays him on his own animal as he walks beside him all the way to an inn. Not just to drop him off at the end, but he stays the night with the man, caring for the man ministering to the man, serving the man, making sure that the man has what he needs, only to wake up to spend more money on the man to make sure that all of his needs are met. The entirety of the story is actually an answer to the lawyer's question. In verse 29, who is my neighbor? He wanted to see how narrowly he could define the law so that he could construe his obligation to a certain group of people and blunt the force of what God requires. Friends, isn't that what we do all of the time? Look for ways to blunt the force of what God requires. How do I do only what I have to do and not anything else? I will meet my obligation and nothing more. I will make sure I do exactly what is needed, but not anything extra, because I want to make sure that I'm doing precisely what I need to do to take care of me. But in the end, all the man gets from Jesus is just another question in verse 36. Look at verse 36 with me. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? 
It's a different question completely, isn't it? It's a different question with a completely different answer. Instead of, who am I required to love to inherit eternal life? As the man asks in verse 29, Jesus flips the question entirely as we come to the end of the parable. And he says, to who can I be a loving neighbor because I am a recipient of compassion and mercy and eternal life. Jesus' followers and his disciples are called to show love to absolutely everyone, even if that person would consider us an enemy. Jesus' followers and his disciples are called to show, show love to everyone, even if we would not consider that person to be our friend. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller summarized the point well when he said it this way. We instinct, instinctively tend to limit for whom we exert ourselves. We do it for people like us or for people whom we like. Jesus will have none of that. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, or religion is your neighbor. Not everyone who is your brother or sister in faith, but everyone is your neighbor. And you must love your neighbor. The whole incident begins with the man asking a very important question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That is the stuff that salvation is made of. That is the question that you should be asking if you've gathered here today. That is the question that we are seeking to answer absolutely every week. But what this man gets in the end is that he learns that there is nothing that he can do to inherit eternal life. It is, verse 37, an act of mercy all the way. And friends, when we actually step back from the parable and we begin to look at the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in the entirety of the section here, we see that the whole interaction between Jesus and this lawyer is to teach us something. It's not simply to teach us how do we narrow the law or how to answer people who have objections rightly. Jesus is teaching us that we're not simply the people who are ignoring the needs in front of us. The reality is, is that many of us are ignoring the needs in front of us. We're ignoring the very people who need our help. It takes too much time. It takes too much money. It's too complicated. It's too emotionally involved. I don't consider them to be my best friend. I'm not really a lot like them. They're a different race than me. They're a different age than me. They're too young to understand. They're too old to understand. They're not a member of my church. They don't live anywhere near me. I don't have time after work. I'm tired after a long day. That's the reality for us. But Jesus is not simply trying to make us feel bad about ourselves. Jesus is telling us that we're the helpless man. We're not simply the people who are ignoring what's in front of us. We are the helpless man. And unless someone intervenes for us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, we will certainly perish. In fact, we're worse off than this man. He was left half dead, but we were completely dead. Like the lawyer, we are trying to justify ourselves and so that we can find a way out of this life. How do I get to live the way that I want to live? How can I justify my actions towards my friends or my spouse or my kids or my neighbors or my fellow church members? How can I justify the way that I talk about other people so that we can do what we want to do when we want to do it with the people that we want to do it? 
But like the lawyer, we are deceived in our condition. Friends, it is not and it has never been, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But what has been done for me so that I can inherit eternal life? And as we step back from the parable, we see perhaps for the first time that Jesus is the true good Samaritan. Jesus is the true good Samaritan who came to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. Jesus did not simply come to take us to an end. Jesus came to save us. Friends, Jesus came to save us while we were enemies. Jesus came to save us when we were not half dead but completely dead. Jesus came to save us when we, we were needy and unlovable. Jesus came to save us when we were hostile to God, hating God and hating everything that God says to do. Jesus came and he paid the price, not merely to take care of us for a night or for a day. Jesus came to pay a price at great cost to himself so that we might, by his wounds, might be healed and receive eternal life. Friends, the beauty of this parable is that it teaches us that we are the helpless, weak, wounded, destitute people who stand in great need of God to do something for us so that we might have eternal life. Have you lost sight of that? So many of us loved that truth when we first became a believer, but now we live as Christians. What must I do? What must I do? What must I do? And because it is so overwhelming, we look to narrow it. How do I do just enough so that I can make sure that I'm still good? To which Jesus will have none of it. Confronts us afresh with his teaching. And he tells us that we're not simply the people ignoring what's in front of us, but we're the helpless people. We were helpless then, and we're helpless now. And unless God has mercy and God shows compassion, we will continue in a terrible state. Friend, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's not what must I do that should motivate you, but what has been done that should motivate you. And what God has done for you in Christ should literally be what drives you into each day. What God has done for you in Christ can never be exhausted in this life, and it will never be exhausted in the next. What God has done for you in Christ is so great and so wonderful and so magnanimous and extravagant that it should overwhelm us and it should compel us to show love to everyone regardless of how different they might be from us. And friend, if you're here and you are not a believer... Perhaps you think of yourself as not a Christian, or you might think of yourself to be a Christian, but this parable reveals to you that you're not a Christian because at bottom, what you're trying to do is justify yourself. And the reality is, is that you'll never be able to justify yourself. You are in a great place this morning. You're in a place where we're gonna tell you the truth. You can't do it and you never will be able to do it, but God has done it for you in Christ. God has sent Jesus to live the life that you could not live and to die the death that you deserve to bear under the full weight of God's wrath so that you might not have to bear under the full weight of God's wrath. So that if you would trust in Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice for you, that you too might be born again and know the wonder of God's love, his mercy and his compassion. Because if you were honest with yourself and honest with other people this morning, you know that you don't deserve it. You know how you've lived and you know what you've said and you know what you've thought, even when you haven't said it and you haven't done it. And all of it will send you to hell if you don't repent of your sins and trust in Christ. 
Friends, the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus comes to us and he extends to us mercy when we're enemies. He has compassion on us when we are helpless. He loves us when we are unlovable and he did it at great cost to himself. Once we understand this, we stop moralizing the parables and we stop moralizing this story in particular We stop moralizing about all of the things that need to be done and all of the things that need to get done and all of the things that we need to do to make sure that we're still good with God. And we begin to motivate ourselves rightly by what has been done for us. Mercy and compassion has been shown to us, so we therefore show mercy and compassion. Friends, Jesus has loved you. So he says in verse 37, you go and do likewise. Jesus has had compassion on you. So you go and do likewise. Jesus has loved you. So you go and do likewise. Jesus has forgiven you. So you go and do likewise. Jesus has been patient with you. So you go and do likewise. Jesus has been kind to you. So you go and do likewise. Jesus has done it at great cost to himself. Friends, so you go and do likewise. Let me ask you this morning, who are you withholding God's love from? Who are you withholding God's love from? And what reason is justified in your sight? Why are you able to justify withholding God's love? How narrowly have you defined the list of people that you have to love? These are the people that I have to love because they agree with me politically, because they agree with me about vaccines, or because they agree with me about parenting decisions, or because they agree with me about life decisions, or because they agree with me about financial decisions, or because they agree with me about how to spend free time, or because they agree with me about educational decisions for themselves, and for their children. Friends, as the kingdom of God was preached, Jesus began to expand it to the list of people, people that no one would have ever imagined it going to, people who were unlovable and unlovely, and people who were unlike one another. And he began to fill the room just like this with people who are made up of a variety of different backgrounds, and it would transcend all of the things that they would prop up against one another. Just like in this story, I'm a Jew, you're a Samaritan, so I don't have to do any good to you, and you don't have to do any good to me. We can just learn how to live on the planet together. Friends, that's the love of the world. No one has ever called you to just coexist with others in Christ. That's a bumper sticker, but that's not Christ. Jesus says that the one who understands the love of God is the one who understands that they have to love all people. All people, even when they disagree with those people, even when they're not like those people, because all people are their neighbors. Neighbors who, just like you, have been made in God's image. Neighbors who, just like you, make different decisions about life. Neighbors who are different than you, but who are loved by God. I realize that in the congregation this size, as I step back and just preach to our church for a moment, 
that many of you disagree with one another about a host and a variety of things, many of which are very important to you and I'm sure matter a lot and are worthy of conversation and decisions. But have you ever considered that the kingdom of God is made up of a great many people that are just nothing like you and they're just never gonna agree with you on any number of things that you hold dear? That the kingdom of God is made up of a a great many of people who are different than you, but are loved by God. They're different than you and they're loved by God. You don't have to agree with them or to be best friends with them, but you do have to love them. And you are not to gossip against them or to slander about them or look for reasons why you can distance yourself from them and narrowly define the pool of people that you've decided that you're willing to show spiritual good to. That's the love of the world. That is not the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came to preach. Jesus doesn't tell us to learn how to talk well in front of people and to coexist with them. Jesus tells us to have compassion on people and to show mercy to people because God has had compassion on us and he has shown mercy to us. God has had compassion on us and he has shown mercy to us So we extend that compassion and mercy to other people. Members of this church in particular, it is okay to be different than one another. No one is required to agree with you and you should not need them to agree with you. But you can learn to talk with one another and to live with one another. And if you feel that you can't do that, let me just invite you. The elders would love to help you have those difficult conversations so that we might display something more beautiful than your preferences the body of Christ made up of people who are not like one another, but are going to the same place together so that we might learn to live together in a beautiful and wonderful way. One of the most wonderful things about this weekend with Tim Keller dying is that people who disagree with one another about all kinds of things have gathered together around one thing that they have in common. We love Tim Keller. And people who have propped up all types of things. This is why I'm different than you and don't have to like you are saying, he helped me, he ministered to me. This man was a faithful man. And it helps us see that perhaps the things that we hold so dear and are absolutely convinced matter and matter a lot, probably don't matter as much as we think that they do. But lest we think that neighbor love is all that is required, Let's just take a step back again and look at the rest of the passage. Look with me in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Lest anybody be confused that neighbor love is enough, Jesus tells us another story, that neighbor love and good works is not enough, that we have to love God too. Friends, you might be really good at loving other people here, 
but you're not good at loving God because you won't admit that you're a sinner. And you won't admit that your sin has separated you from God. And that you won't admit that your sin is still your greatest problem. Not somebody else's sin, but your sin in particular. Jesus knows this to be true of all of us. We're constantly looking for the problem outside of us so that we don't have to look at the problem, which is us. So Jesus tells another story here about this interaction that he has with Martha. Friends, lest we think that neighbor love is enough, he tells us that we have to love God because Jesus knows that we're all looking for loopholes, but Jesus will have none of it. Jesus' disciples must do both. They must love neighbor and they must love God. They must love God and they must love their neighbors. They must love their neighbors because they have been loved by God, but not to be loved by God. And he tells us that we are to go and to do likewise. So friends, let me charge you today. Go and do likewise. Love God with every fiber of your being. Love God completely with all of your might. Focus all of your mind and your attention on loving God and knowing God. And know that that in and of itself is not enough. You are to love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as much as you can love your neighbor. Love all of your neighbors the best that you can. And know that while you're doing it, you need to love God. You need to do it because you love God. Friends, love God and love your neighbor. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. We pray that you would help us today to love God and to love our neighbor. And that we would do the astonishing thing of stop trying to limit our liability and narrow the pool of people that we are to be kind to. But like our Lord Jesus, expand our responsibility and realize that that pool of people is much larger than we would have ever wanted it to be. It encompasses everybody. But we would be motivated by the great love that has been shown to us in Christ. Father, I pray for us as a people that you would cause us to be a church, a church of people who are made up of a variety of different types of people who learn how to live together in such a beautiful way that the unbelieving world would look into this fellowship and that they would see there's something radically different. And Father, that you would use that as a catalyst for the revival that our pastor Renee prayed about earlier in this service. Father, we pray that you would pour out your love first here, that we would be people who have not only received your love to be justified by faith alone in Christ, but that we would be people who are motivated by that love to love one another so that the beauty of your love might be displayed in your church in a compelling community. Father, that we might be a type of community that the unbelieving world will look into and see people made up of a variety of different backgrounds, but who are not backbiting and bickering, who are not complacent and hostile, who are not passive-aggressive and hyper-aggressive, of people who are slandering one another by just saying it's a disagreement, of people who have learned how to be together in community in Christ. Father, we pray that you'd forgive us for not loving you well because we have not loved one another well. Father, you would forgive us for all of the ways that this has damaged our witness to the gospel. Father, we pray that you would help us to hold out the gospel, but that we would uphold the gospel with our lives. Father, we ask that we would go and do likewise. 
not for by law, but because of the compassion and mercy that have been shown us in Christ. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the friend of sinners. Amen. Would you stand and continue in worship with us?